3: 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed,
4: the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary. And April
3: Callahan. Okay. So that is perhaps not our usual introduction to Dressed, but these are highly unusual times that we're living in, <laughs> friends. So that applause and this entire episode actually is dedicated to all of the healthcare workers around the world who are facing down this pandemic by coming into work each and every day. Thank you. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you right? And, and this, cast is actually something that we've been doing every evening here in New York City at 7 p.m. Everybody opens up their windows, or if you can, people go up to their roof, and there is this tremendous round of applause for several minutes, not only for healthcare workers, but also all of the other essential workers who have been taking care of us here in the Big Apple. And of course, as our regular listeners know, cast that you're in New Mexico. Do you have any kind of new things that you are doing over there to honor the essential workers in your community? Um, people are
4: doing the same thing, not necessarily in my neighborhood. We don't live that close to each other, but in, in the city in Albuquerque proper, people, I go I think, go out at 7 p.m. and applaud everyone. It's just kind of a fun way for us all to come together as a community and share our appreciation.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And And there's actually someone in my neighborhood that after the clap stops, he like publicly broadcasts like a really cool song after that. And just oh, one that's song. <laughs> and that's it. And then it's over. It's very sweet.
4: Yeah. And while these may be our local gestures of gratitude, we also wanted to send that same gratitude around the world. So today we are so pleased to honor medical professionals in the small way we can on dressed. So today we are exploring the history of the nurse uniform. We are being joined by cultural historian Marissa Hollywood, who has done some fascinating work on the subject of attire of American nurses throughout the 20th century.
3: An author of two books on New York history and a longtime museum professional, Marissa is currently the Associate Director of the Kupferberg Holocaust Center at the Queensborough Community College, which is part of the City University of New York. And previously, she was the Executive Director of the Queen's Historical Society. And we are so pleased that she is going to join us today for this very special episode. Welcome, Marissa, to Dressed. Marissa, thank you so much for joining us on Dressed today. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm not sure if this was strategic on your end, but did you know that it's National Nurses Week right now? I I did not know that, actually. (laughs) So it's very fortuitous. And I I was really thrilled when I discovered your work on the history of nurse uniforms because... All the way back, dating to our very first season of Dressed, we've had so many listeners, many of whom are nurses, who have requested an episode on this very topic. And I had actually kind of already plugged it into our schedule for this season. And well, now with the pandemic, the subject is even more timely than ever. So um, thank you for joining us today to talk about this. And first off, I'm hoping maybe that you can tell us a little bit about Historic Practices of Caring for the Sick, and the Early History of Nursing. Who was kind of serving in this capacity and why? I think it's somewhat fitting to, to start with a quote from one of, if
2: not the most famous nurse in history, Florence Nightingale, of course. In Notes on Nursing that she published in 1859, she wrote, quote, every woman, or at least almost every woman, has at one time or another of her life charge of the personal health of somebody whether child or invalid. In other words, every woman is a nurse, end quote. So prior to its being formally established as a profession in the 19th century, nursing was really always seen as women's vocation, as an evolution of their normal duties, caring for children and the sick and the elderly within their family. But if we go like back, like way back, some historians say that shamans in early societies could be yeah. seen as some of history's earliest nurses because of their roles as healers and their knowledge of healing properties, of plants and, and minerals. Writings from early societies like the ancient Egyptians and the Babylonians, uh, they mention theories of practice of healing, but they don't really indicate who were the ones that were actually providing the care for the sick. Only priests, physicians are mentioned And they were usually attributed to having magical powers or spiritual powers that let them heal. Some of the earliest references to the title of of nurse can be traced back to another female vocation of nuns, nunneries Mm -hmm. in the Middle Ages, as many hospitals and charities were connected to the church. Nuns and religious workers as healers are understandable during periods of infectious disease because dangerous labor like that was looked at as a type of self-sacrifice. So, you know, putting someone else's needs really before your own. Mm -hmm. And that type of work would ultimately serve as salvation in God's eyes and would be part of the process of someone moving through the stages of the sisterhood. And so because of this, nursing becomes associated with saintliness. And we see St. Elizabeth of Hungary, St. Catherine of Siena, who become looked at as martyrs for their selfless care of the sick. In the early modern period, so like late 15th century to late 18th century, nursing continues as oral tradition with direct hands on practice. But then when reading and writing become more common, healing methods start being actually documented. When I was preparing for this interview, I found a lot of references to plagues, which was really unsettling right now. Yeah. But um, I was looking at European plagues of 16th and 17th centuries and how medicine really at that time was an obscure pursuit. The few people that actually formally studied medicine, they distanced themselves from patients. And if they really visited them in person, they wore, quote, huge masks, their faces mm-hmm. hidden behind various protective herbs and chemicals that were packed into great beak-shaped contraptions. And it's so sad because my first thought was like, you know, what were those herbs? Like, maybe it's <laughs> something we can <could> yeah. use. <laughs> something fun. Yeah, something <laughs> we could use now. Um, But it was the local women healers who were the ones that were practicing hands-on healing during this time. And then after the Protestant Reformation, monasteries are abolished and many of the hospitals that they supported, you know, along with them. So for states that remained Catholic in the the Counter-Reformation, new nursing orders emerged. And it was the age of exploration. So nurses in Catholic religious orders, they start being part of these early colonizing societies, and they establish hospitals and schools— in the New World, in that quest to enlighten the indigenous populations, until healthcare reforms in the 19th century, ultimately effective nursing care was found within religious orders. They had some form of education, they had apprenticeship-based
3: training, and they were committed to helping because of religious devotion. Yeah. Huh. That's really fascinating. And you kind of like very briefly touched on this just a bit ago, but I want to delve into this a little bit further that I was really surprised to learn reading your work that the institutional education of nurses in the United States didn't begin until the 1870s, which is, of course, after the Civil War, right? And there were so many nurses, most of whom were women, um, tending to all these tens of thousands of people who were injured during the war. I mean, this is really one of the most horrific periods of U.S. history. Um, There's been some, like, recent Civil War scholarship that has actually upped the numbers of how many people were perhaps killed um, in, the, in the last few years. This, this new research has come out estimating that approximately three-quarters of a million Americans lost their lives during the American Civil War, which was a four-year period which ran between 1861 and 1865. So where were these battlefields? nurses and hospital nurses getting their training at this time if they were getting any at all? Was it again kind of what you just touched on, that this was like an oral tradition and again being born out of monastic orders?
2: So it's true. The first school of nursing in America was established in 1873, and that was at Bellevue Hospital in New York City. And then the American Red Cross was founded by Clara Barton in 1881 in, in Washington, D.C., But obviously, nurses existed prior to this in the U.S., and there were formal schools in Europe that were established much earlier. Mm. So like the first official training program for nurses in England was established in 1840 by Elizabeth Fry, and it was called the Institution of Nursing Sisters. So again, like that kind of religious component. And then there was also a Protestant sisterhood known as the German Deaconesses. They didn't formally take vows, but still were motivated by religion. And one of these houses that became very well known was the Kaiserworth Institute in the Rhineland. Here, the sisters, they're trained in healthcare for the sick poor. And Florence Nightingale actually visits here and she takes some inspiration for future nursing reforms. Some of these European organizations come to North America and establish themselves here. So the Daughters of Charity was based on a movement in France and it was established in Maryland as far back as 1809. It was headed by Elizabeth Ann Seton and it becomes known as the Sisters of Charity of St. Joseph. And then in 1849, nurses that were at the Kaiserworth Institution come here and they establish a house in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So there was some some formal kind of training institutions around. In terms of the Civil War, at first the government enlists the help of hundreds of Catholic sisters, but there was not nearly enough. Um, you know, as you were saying, with just the the breadth of this. So a volunteer nursing service is established. It was led by Dorothea Dix, who was named superintendent of female nurses for the Army. More than 2,000 women serve as volunteer nurses during this time. And in the hospitals, and that's both established hospitals and these makeshift ones that popped up, patients were tended to by a mix of nursing sisters, male orderlies, and then these female volunteers. The volunteers were dressing wounds, they were administering medicine and food, and they were offering, I think probably most importantly, care and and comfort. Clara Barton was one such volunteer who eventually is promoted to superintendent of nurses for the Army of the James.
3: Yeah. And um, now that we've just briefly touched on the early history of nursing, we're actually going to take a short sponsor break, but more with Marissa when we come back. Welcome back. Marissa, I'm hoping next that you might tell us a little bit more about those specific reforms that Florence Nightingale instituted. Because her leadership did quite a lot to kind of revolutionize healthcare practices during the 19th century. So what did Nightingale espouse and how did her teachings lend legitimacy to nursing as a profession?
2: So it was the devastating injuries caused by the Crimean War that inspired Nightingale to really take action. It was the first conflict where trained nurses provided care to troops, and because of the the so called modern technology in terms of weaponry, the bodily harm during this war was unprecedented. And so, for Florence Nightingale, who I think I forgot this, but was reminded was born in Florence uh, in 1820 <laughs> to a wealthy and educated family. And ironically, Nightingale gets into nursing because she has a vision from God as a teenager. And I find this so funny because she later works to separate the training of nursing from the, from the church, <laughs> but it was, it was God that first motivated her. And she was not supported by her family in the beginning. She writes nurse, notes on nursing, as I said, in 1859, and she establishes this formal written set of protocol. She writes in it, um, quote, I use the word nursing for want of a better. It has been limited to signify little more than the administration of medicines and the application of pulses. It ought to signify the proper use of fresh air, light, warmth, cleanliness, quiet, and the proper selection and administration of diet, all at the least expense of vital power to the patient. End quote. And I think this hesitation to use the title nurse is really important here. After the Reformation and the secularization of nursing, there's a loss of structure and discipline and strict codes of dress that we'll we'll talk about more later. Without the church and an enforced ethical code, there's a decline of professional standards and behavior, and nursing starts to acquire negative connotations as a job for women who were not respectable. So there's basically two classes of nurses at this time. There's women who worked as nurses to make a living, and then there's these like philanthropic ladies who took part in nursing as a charitable act, and so that's like what the nurse is in Nightingale's time. And uh, I just want to read this this fantastic quote. It's from the introduction to the 2003 edition of Notes on Nursing. Uh, "Quote: A desire to pursue a career would have been astonishing for any wealthy Victorian woman, but nursing in particular was considered to be a lowly occupation." Up to that time, most nurses had been professed religious women who practiced in Protestant and Catholic hospitals. In the public hospitals, nursing was relegated to untrained secular women of questionable morals and ill repute, (laughs) many of whom were said to be alcoholics. (laughs) So, I mean, it's kind of hilarious, but I mean, I want to stress that the efforts of these working-class nurses were vital, and many of these women— perform the hard work that took place in the hospitals. Their roles kind of merged um, into domestic labor and they would ultimately create like a tiered system of hospital work with those higher higher class educated nurses doing the more technical and scientific aspects the dispensing of, of medicines and things like that. So Nightingale plays a significant role in helping to reestablish a code of ethics for the field as well as to make the position respectable and socially acceptable for women. And this recognition of a respectable occupation for women was really, I think, one of the first steps to female empowerment and helps to lay the foundation for women becoming successful and established members of the workplace. Her writings influenced the ideals of nursing throughout the world. And in America, those guidelines could be seen in the code of ethics established by developing nursing schools.
3: And, and another thing um, I think that you write about is that part of these moral objections to women working as nurses were partially assuaged by the adoption of uniforms. And that's, of course, what we're here to talk about today. So what did early nurse uniforms look like as instituted by N- Nightingale in the UK and perhaps Barton in the U.S. at this time?
2: As nuns were the first women who held the title of nurse, it makes a lot of sense how the first nurse uniforms would bear resemblance to the, you know, the costume worn by nuns. Simple, modest dresses of starch white linen worn to both protect the patient and the wearer and to mask the body from any element of sexuality. So we're talking coverage neck to wrist to ankle. And mm-hmm. when Nightingale introduces proper nursing procedures, a coat of dress comes with them. Dress and pinafore so a sleeveless apron-like garment worn over the dress, the main difference being that it would have a bib covering the chest, a cap, and then a cape to be worn outdoors. That becomes the standard uniform.
3: Yeah. And, and if anybody um, recalls our episode from a few weeks ago on uh, service mode, d- dressing the domestic servant, you will notice a little bit of overlap there with the maid's uniform as well, as in specifically with that apron um, and the cap. So this is the uniform of the quote-unquote working woman, right? This is signifying that you are working. We cannot speak about the nurse uniform at all without broaching the subject of color. So how and when did white first become associated with the medical profession?
2: So to some extent, color was used symbolically in the design of the nurse uniform, In logical terms, though, white is the easiest color to clean with harsh cleaning agents like bleach. And so the traditional white color of the nurse uniform stems from early medical practices where the illusion of cleanliness was upheld through an appearance that lacked any visible traces of dirt. Once the idea of germs were discovered, white worn in the presence of the sick gave the appearance of being sterile. And this was really important for the mental state of patients who were weary from their injuries or illnesses, and and during wartime, those who were traumatized from their experiences. And then there was blue for purity. We tend to connect white with purity, of course, in Western society, especially because of the wedding dress, you know, the trend established by Queen Victoria. But in Christianity... Blue can also symbolize virginal Mary. purity. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and I, I just read that um, the blue in something borrowed, something blue, is said to honor the Virgin Mary, who usually is depicted with a blue mantle, which I never noticed before. And this is cool. The, the French saying, a sacre bleu, is an ode to Mary as a plea for protection under her blue cloth, which, again, I never huh. really connected. Um, it's also said that blue can represent health, it can represent hope and, and servitude. We see a lot of uniforms in blue. And then there was pink for femininity.
3: Yeah, and this color hierarchy actually plays out in the nurse uniforms for students, right? Can you tell us a little bit more about this? And many nursing schools
2: where a nurse was in her course of study could quickly be determined by her uniform. Most nursing schools would only allow graduates to wear a white uniform, and the students would wear a white apron and sometimes a pinafore over their colored dress. So at John Hopkins University, students went from a pink dress to a blue dress until when they completed their studies, they received their bright white uniform. And this went all the way up to high ranking nurse status, like that of a superintendent who would typically mm-hmm. wear black. This uniform coding continued on in nursing schools right up until the 1980s, really. And reinforcing the ideal set in place by Nightingale, the separate uniform gave students a clear visual path to their future goals, and it made it easy to identify various levels of nurses on the hospital ward.
3: Yeah, and I think that very point might be something that we're gonna come back to here in a little bit. But aside from white the color white, I think that another iconic element of the nurse's uniform, at least in the popular imagination, is the nurse's cap. And it's actually something that held a lot of meaning for nurses during the 19th and early 20th century. So I'm hoping that you might tell us a bit about both the practical and the symbolic role of nurse's caps. What, what role have they played historically?
2: History of the nursing cap is a little more complicated than the uniform garment itself. Early nurses wore headdresses like those of nuns, again, because of the obvious connection between nuns and nursing. And then these headdresses evolve into these veil-like pieces that cover all of the wearer's hair. And in the 19th century, when nursing becomes secular, caps become more practical. Uh, It's a practical component of the uniform. Starched white cotton or linen that's meticulously folded, and it holds the hair back and out of the face, and it prevents contamination. There's a great variation in the style of nursing caps throughout the 20th century. And the variations were based on the institutions that they came from rather than trend. So nursing schools or hospitals designed their caps to give their nurses a clear identity. The shape of the cap and its variations of folds as well as colors, stripes, or other patterns on ribbons made them distinctive. And it's clear through historical images that the cap decreases in size from those that are worn at the beginning of the 20th century. The early caps meant to contain the hair, but while those from the 1940s on, they're smaller and they're purely decorative at this point. The caps serve to just be another aspect of visual goals for the student nurse. So the capping ceremony becomes an important part of a nurse's journey. It marks the transition from student to staff member. And then um, a little anecdote here. So my mother is a nurse that you know, initially inspired me to do some of this research And she went to the Caldonia School of Nursing in the early 70s, which was in Brooklyn, it no longer exists. And the caps from this school had a distinctive plaid ribbon. And I always remember a story that my mom would tell about how she was working in the hospital after graduating when nurses still wore caps as part of their uniform and how this one doctor that she would run into on the unit would always be like, hey, (laughs) Caldonia!" like whenever he saw her because of the cap. And she said how it made her feel really proud and that's what these caps meant to nurses. It was pride. And my, my mother was not alone in this. Uh, part of my research, I did this uh, survey of nurses to get kind of some background on their experiences with the uniform. And there was this, this uh, another nurse who said how, quote, they always told us in nursing school that Ford graduates were respected the world over. We were identified by our distinctive Henry Ford Hospital School nursing cap. I recall walking off an elevator at the University of California Medical Center, and I overheard someone in the back of the elevator say, there goes a Ford grad. And I was so very <laughs> proud to know that person was talking about me, end quote. So it's that same idea. I think that this was something that anyone that wore the cap would have experienced. Today, since the cap is no longer worn, nursing schools have pinning or candlelighting ceremonies, and that's what marks the graduation from student
3: to nurse. Yeah. And I guess we also have to remember that these time periods that we're talking about when nurses were wearing the cap during the 20th century, um, there's a connection to fashion here too, because women were very much wearing hats on the regular basis at this exact same time. So what is the relationship between fashion proper and the uniforms that nurses wore up until this World War II. And I guess I'm kind of more or less getting a silhouette here.
2: Nurse uniforms in the first years of the 20th century seem to directly reflect current fashion trends. Portraits in 1908 show nurses that look like Gibson girls, right? So Mm -hmm. the style based on Charles Dana Gibson, S-shaped corset body frame, hair piled on top of the head. These uniforms grazed the floor and they had band collars and tailored waists. The most significant changes to the uniform for the first years of the 20th century and the onset of World War I was the change from the standing collar to a fold over collar and then a slightly shorter hemline. Another important change was the disappearance of the white apron and pinafore for nurses and hospitals. This excludes student nurses, operating room nurses, and nurses that might have been serving in war hospitals. Hospital nurses now wore a one piece, completely white uniform. But This is very different from the depiction of the nurse in the media. World War I increases the demand for nurses, and with reforms taking place both for women as well as from the advancement of the nursing profession, nursing becomes more accepted and prevalent in hospitals. The establishment of the American Red Cross helps to establish public nursing programs, first aid, water safety. And so during this time, there's numerous posters distributed by the Red Cross, encouraging women to become patriots and to help the war effort. The posters are widely distributed across the country, and they're designed by many distinguished artists like Norman Rockwell, Howard Chandler Christie, N.C. Wyeth. Here, the nurse is clearly romanticized in her depiction. From my research, I studied a handful of different Red Cross posters that were all produced between 1918 and 1919. One shows this Virgin Mary-like nurse in a pose identical to Michelangelo's Pieta. The nurse in this poster is wearing a garment as well as a cap that has a great deal of fabric so that it drapes in a a similar way to the Pieta. But it's not indicative of the nurse uniform at that time. In 1918, the uniform had fullness at the hem, but not nearly as much as depicted in this poster. Another shows a nurse on the battlefield wearing an apron that appears to be attached to the collar of the uniform, I couldn't find any other photographs that prove if this type of garment was ever worn. So they were just completely making it up in the design. Fantasy. Yeah. (laughs) This this makes sense, right? It had to have looked like this. And then there's one that shows this scantily clad woman in a garment that would have been highly inappropriate in 1919. Bare arms, low-cut neckline nearly sheer fabric. The only thing about her costume that would indicate that this figure is in fact a nurse is that she's wearing a cap that has the symbol of the Red Cross right at center front. And again, these posters are heavily reproduced, and they serve as examples of how the image of the nurse has been modified throughout the 20th century to represent the type of woman that the artist, the photographer, or the filmmaker deem fitting.
3: Mm-hmm. The idealized image. Exactly
2: uniform protocol becomes very strict in the 20th century and inspections, especially for nursing students, was severe. The timeframe between world wars shows minimal changes to the nurse uniform. At some hospitals, uniform lengths decrease and then the waist drops slightly. That would reflect a current trend. But photographs from this time, I really think that it seems like they're reflecting the time period, but it's probably more due to the hairstyle and the makeup of the nurses, which immediately set the time and tone for you, but their clothing is not as much.
3: Yeah, it's really funny because um, sometimes when I have questions about an undated photograph, one of the first things that I do I look at is the hair. And because I'm at FIT and we have the college archives as well, like if it's like, is this 1943 or is this 1940? 45, the first thing I do is I render the yearbooks. Yeah, yeah. Oh, definitely. Because you can see those little differences in the hairstyles. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) It's really, really wonderful. Uh, You have noted that the Second World War actually brought some of the most significant changes in the history of the uniform. So what happened at that time, and why was it significant? The nurse uniform
2: plays a vital role on the battlefields of World War II. So back home, hospital nurse uniforms they very quickly modified to account for wartime. In 1941, long-fitted skirts and aprons were replaced with shorter sleeves and shorter skirts, and they were now one piece. And this is so that there were multiple pieces that had to be laundered separately to conserve materials and labor during the war years, which makes sense. But the nurses out on the battlefields, they got a taste of the future of fashion because they were allowed to wear the less restrictive clothing of men, Military nurses wore men's fatigues made up of baggy trousers, loose button-up shirts. These women needed to wear practical clothing to protect themselves from the natural dangers of often being outdoors in harsh climates with unfamiliar insects and plants. While nurse uniforms worn in the hospitals typically covered skin for sanitary reasons, nurses generally worked in temperature-regulated areas. Here on the warfront, they were forced to cover up in the oppressive heat in order to protect themselves.
3: Yeah. And, and I think that's so interesting that we're seeing women wearing pants at this time in the 1940s. And anybody who listens to the podcast regularly will know that any discussion of women wearing pants, whether that be literally or metaphorically, <laughs> throughout history has really opened up this floodgate for commentary on the perceived aberration of traditional gender roles. And of course, that in turn, brings up to light many of the power struggles that are inherent to any discourse on the matter of sex. And this particular period was no exception um, when it came to nurses' uniforms. You know, you mentioned that one particular Red Cross poster of the scantily clad nurse from 1918. So as a medical professional, how has a nurse's position of authority over men who are injured, her, who are her patients. How has this kind of been negotiated historically?
2: Well, when we think of World War II, I have, a, I have this great little anecdote from a wonderful book called Angels of Mercy, Army Nurses of World War II. It's by Betsy Kuhn. Um, she writes, "Quote: well, Lieutenant Colonel Nola Forrest was director of nurses for the Southwest Pacific during the last years of the war. In New Guinea, she met Irving Berlin, the composer of God Bless America and other popular tunes, when he was there enter- entertaining the troops with his touring show, This Is the Army. And he asked her, what do you dislike most about army life? And her response was, I think it's these pants. They were made of heavy twill. They were worn with leggings and high shoes that protected her from mosquitoes. And her reply inspires him to write an unpublished song, which he later sent to her, I'm not going to sing it because I don't know what the tune would have been because it never went anywhere. Um, But it said, Oh, for a dress again, to caress again, in a dress again. Covered up from head to your toe, we must hide what we'd like to show. Oh, for a skirt again, just to flirt again, in a skirt again. There's no romance when you dance cheek to cheek and pants to pants. Oh, for an old fashioned dress. (laughs) So, yeah, this song might have indeed (laughs) reflected the thoughts and frustrations of many of these army nurses who felt that their femininity was repressed by their new uniforms. However, I think it suggests the idea that, although these women were hard at work, selflessly serving their country, that they still were viewed purely as sexual objects by men. Berlin immediately turns Lieutenant Forrest's disgust for her regulation pants into a disgust with not being able to display her legs to attract the opposite sex. And while it's true that fashions of the forties, you know, celebrated and displayed the legs more, Berlin completely overlooked the possibility that Forrest disliked her pants because they were very different from the type of garment she was used to wearing while at work and even at play back in the U.S. Here, even if skirts could somehow be a practical option, there was no nylon or silk available for stockings and bare legs wouldn't have been acceptable. Not just due to social norms, but because of mosquitoes and other dangers of exposure. In actuality, by complaining about her heavy pants... Faris is lamenting the war itself and longing to go back to pre-war times, where stockings were available, skirts were not a hazard, and instead he turns it into this comical lament for casual flirtation, which I think is kind yeah. of sad.
3: Well, and, and and I would I would argue that a nurse's uniform has really become one of the ultimate symbols of fetishization when it comes to workwear, right? Not just flirtation, but it's been highly sexually charged in the popular imagination. And I'm hoping that you can delve into this for us. Why, why is that? Like, it, And it's like a persistent fetishization and at least like a sexual trope that's existed for decades.
2: Some men were quick to belittle these female World War II nurses into purely sexual creatures who happened to have jobs. Posters and pinup images that were prevalent on and off the battlefields during this time exacerbated this mind state. Nurses were either made out to be sexually suggestive in their care of patients, or they were displayed as subservient. Nurses were vital during the war. More than 59,000 army nurses served, and more than 200 died serving their country in this occupation. And then back home, women were taking the jobs that enlisted men were forced to vacate, and they did those jobs well. Masculinity is threatened. So to counter their insecurities, women were demeaned by reducing nurses to sexual objects. In the book, Uniforms Exposed from Conformity to Transgression, Jennifer Craig separates uniform design into three sources, military, ecclesiastical, and service. And she says that the nurse uniform is, falls into the category of servant, Nursing is an occupation, and even at the highest level, nurse is still at a lower tier than a a doctor. And the nurse fantasy role stems from the viewpoint of the male doctor, who sees the nurse as his possession. The nurse ultimately reports to the doctor and is required to follow his orders and carry out his requests for the care of the patient. But then we can look at sexual theory. Think of Freud's Oedipal Complex, in which a man desires and finds attraction in motherly nurturing. An important role of the nurse is to nurture and comfort The patient fills a role like that of a sick child that needs a mother's care. And then there's the idea of sadomasochism and the desire to be dominated or to be inflicted with pain. Although in reality, the nurse may not be the cause of pain, she may be present while the patient is feeling pain, thus indirectly creating an association in the patient's mind. The nurse controls the pain by being able to treat the wound or by being able to dispense the medication that will remove that pain. In this scenario, she exudes dominance over the patient and is almost godlike in her healing actions over helpless infirm. The nurse in many times exudes this omnipotence over a patient more so than by those of a doctor because she's the one that's actually physically carrying out the treatment as opposed to just giving the order or writing the prescription. Nursing is an occupation that was rarely associated with men until we get into the 20th century, and it remains a socially acceptable profession for women and unthreatening to men in regards to the workplace because of this fact. Although in the past men may not have felt threatened about their own job security, they may have been slightly intimidated by women with an education and medical knowledge, and the easiest way For men to become accepting of the nurse was by associating her with sex. By making nurses out to be nothing more than a sexual fantasy, it kept them from becoming a genuine threat to men and made those women appear purely ornamental. I don't think this is talked about a lot historically, but many nurses were very seriously sexually harassed and sometimes even assaulted by male nurses because of their positions of power. And I don't know, I feel like this is sounding very aggressive towards men, (laughs) While I don't know of any female illustrators who were creating these highly sexualized pinups or posters, I'm sure there were also many women who were intimidated and horrified about the idea of women in the workplace in the 20th century. And they also just wrote these female nurses as being promiscuous and and further pushed these tropes. So I don't think it was just exclusive to men.
3: Yeah. And I know that when you were doing um, this research some years ago in the past, you came up with some... Very interesting internet search results <laughs> when you were working on this. What did you find a few years ago when you started doing image searches relating to nursing? All right. So this was, this was more than
2: 10 years ago. So the first page when I did this research of a Google image search for just the term nurse gave me 21 images. Of the 21 images, there were two historic photographs of nurses that predated 1976. So they accurately depicted the nurse in a recognizable uniform. There were two historic advertisements and dolls. There were seven depicting accurately dressed present day nurses. So they were in scrubs and we'll talk about that more. There was one like miscellaneous image. And then ultimately there were nine non-historic images that depicted a nurse in the quasi-traditional uniform. So white dress and maybe a cap. Five of which depicted the nurse in a subtle or overtly sexual manner. So that's more than 40% of the images that were stereotypical and inaccurate depictions of the nurse uniforms from one search.
3: Um, And and because you had done this a few years ago, I actually popped on right before we started recording to see what I could pull up now. And I'm happy to report back that things have definitely cleaned themselves up a bit on the Google image search front. Um, I found not one hypersexualized image of a nurse in the first 100 hits. So that was really good news. And um, almost, I mean, every single, again, we're going to talk about scrubs here more in a second, but but they were um, almost always dressed in blue, particular scrubs, which I thought was interesting. And I saw more than one nurse wearing the hijab, which I thought was really lovely. So very interesting. That's, that's, a, that's actually really kind of comforting <laughs> that it's
2: evolved a little bit and uh, moving forward. <laughs> so going back on your point about why the nurse uniform remains such a continuing sexual fantasy trope. Now that the traditional nurse's uniform is long gone, why do we still keep seeing the image? Why is it still present in our minds? In many advertisements and television programs and films, nurses are still portrayed in starched white fitted dresses with white stockings and caps, even though the time is the present day. And the simplest explanation for this costume, I think, is that screen and television writers and networks They want to make it obvious to the viewer that the character is in fact a nurse. It might distract from the storyline if the character needs clarification that she's not a physician's assistant or a nurse's age or a phlebotomist, whatever it might be. These occupational titles might be too complicated to deal with at that moment where they do nothing to support the story or the character, and then they're, they're just shrugged off as being unnecessary details. The general viewing public, although completely aware that this uniform is no longer worn accepts the character, and recognizes her role as a nurse without question or contradiction.
3: Yeah. And it's just kind of like shorthand, right? Yeah. That's a nurse. Oh, okay. didn't think about it. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But um, just touching back on this element of sexual fantasy, and particularly a sexual fantasy in the terms of women in uniforms, that sexual fantasy does continue to seem to be pervasive for the stewardess uniform. Because after I got done doing my image search for nurses, I jumped over and searched stewardess. Mm-hmm. And there were definitely some some very kind of sexualized images of stewardesses. So that's, that's a little bit different in that contemporary image search. But in fact, there are some really interesting parallels between the uniformed flight attendant and the nurse. And this was one of the things I found super fascinating in your research.
2: Another bestseller on the wall of slutty Halloween costumes is the, (laughs) The Stewardess. This uniform history has one really big difference from the nurse. There was a time where she was actually required to wear an overtly sexual uniform. While historically, nurses tend to be associated with beauty, and that's most likely a result of the sexual connotations and Maybe the romantic haze a patient under the influence of drugs and pain might might see when they come out, <laughs> you know, when they wake up and they see someone like all in white that's taking care of them. But it was once an official requirement for some airlines of their female workers. While the cliche image of a flight attendant isn't as specific as those of nurses, it usually consists of a tight dress, a lot of cleavage, and a small military-like hat. While the nurse and the flight attendant share Classically feminine job titles, discrimination from the opposite sex, and domestic service roots. They also share a less publicly known connection. And this is so interesting. The first flight attendants were required to have nursing degrees. Yeah.
3: And I, I, have a, I have a really good friend, Jeanette, who's a flight attendant, and I I texted her um, after I read this in your work, and I was like, did you know this? And she's like, yeah. They teach us that, like, during our training, and I thought that was really fascinating. So you had you had to be – you were doing double duty, basically. Yeah, it's
2: unbelievable. There's there's a wonderful book called Femininity in Flight, A History of Flight Attendance by Kathleen Berry, and – She talks about um, this woman named Ellen Church. She was a nurse and a pilot who wanted to work for an airline and who's able to get a meeting with the manager at Boeing. And when she meets with him, she says, you know, the average graduate nurse is a girl with some horse sense. And she's seen enough of men not to be inclined to to chase them around the block at every opportunity. You know, nurses were disciplined. (laughs) They were intelligent. And they were able to handle, like, the onboard clerical functions better than the average young fellow, as she says. So it's decided that the airlines would only hire trained nurses, but they would not advertise this fact because they felt that it might suggest that medical personnel were required for passenger safety and during this time when you know commercial flights are, are starting to pick up. And then ugh, there's this quote: it's so good. Quote: In exercising the skill of a nightingale, the charm of a powers model, and the kitchen wisdom of a fanny farmer, a female journalist wrote in 1943. These early stewardesses they pioneered an occupation that was so saturated with ideals of femininity that the distinct challenges of hostessing a loft would soon be thoroughly obscured. So it's just <laughs> amazing. But both the nurse and the flight attendant whether they're considered two separate occupations or one combination of the two are occupations where the uniform plays almost as important a role as the job they perform, where the flight attendant took on sexuality with her job due to its emphasis on servility. The nurse's sexuality came more from a subconscious reaction to male dominance and superiority in the workplace. The flight attendant was created to be a sexual object in reality, but the nurse becomes one in in fantasy alone.
3: Yeah, yeah. We are going to take another word from our sponsors, but more with Marissa on the trajectory of the modern-day nurse uniform when we come back.
4: For limited time dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today.
0: What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket?
3: welcome back um marissa you have written that quote i'm quoting you the nurse uniform would always remain modest in its evolution into the 21st century but the style began to change so how so and how did this go hand in hand with the kind of wide sweeping social changes that we start to see during the 1960s and and moving forward in the 1950s the image
2: of the nurse is very present in the media and it was quickly back to the traditional white dress uniform from pre-war times. But the role of the nurse had changed slightly post-war. Nurses were more respected now. The nurse had become a symbol of medical knowledge and good judgment. It became an honored goal for young women to become nurses. And the first significant change in the uniform took place in the early 1960s with the loss of the starched white apron or pinafore worn over the dress that was still in some hospitals. So now styles were available that were one-piece white dresses that were lighter, more lab coat-like in their construction, again with the exception of some nursing schools who would have students still wear the apron until the 80s. In uniform advertisements from this time, you can see the presence of three-quarter length or elbow length sleeves, soft Peter Pan style collars, and in a a Barco advertisement, you can see a severe A-line shape to the skirt. A-line-shaped skirt was becoming standard in many hospitals with the fullness at the hem, but it still had a a narrow waist. So for example, students entering John Hopkins School of Nursing in 1969, that was the first class there to wear a new uniform that was made of permapress, a wrinkle-resistant synthetic fabric. And it was a blue-gray that, in keeping with the times, was much shorter than previous uniforms. Evidently, it was not short enough for some students because their um, (laughs) archive said that students rebelled against regulations by hemming their skirts above the knee to reflect the popularity of the miniskirt. But more importantly, it was around this time that the school admitted the first men into its nursing programs. So it created this new need for the design of a shirt and pant uniform. Beginning in the mid-1970s, female students either continued to wear dresses or they could choose to join the men in wearing Pants and shirts during their clinical rotations. So that's really what changes things up men joining the profession and a need for equality in a uniform. And this, it really depended on the nursing school at Caledonia, where my mother went. They remained extremely strict with their uniform requirements, and skirt hems were consistently knee length throughout the 1970s. I was able to do a bunch of research in the collection at the Bridgeport School of Nursing in Connecticut. And I looked at uniforms from 1918 through 1980 and I measured their skirt lengths. So in 1918, the uniform skirt was 34 inches and then the 1980 skirt was 23. So 11 inches of difference in 60 years.
3: Yeah, and it was that in in 1980, was that the shortest length that you looked at at that time or were they even shorter than that in the 60s? That's a good question. Honestly,
2: I think... I don't think they had any samples from the 60s. I think mm. it skipped um I think it skipped from like the 50s until the 80s. But I yeah. bet you're probably right. You probably would have seen something. And I don't know how strict that place was, so there might have been, you know, some hand-stitched hems that were a little shorter breaking yeah. regulation.
3: Well, in that time period too is also when we see the shift away from nurses wearing the cap. So, what significance did that have for the uniform, did that again have to do more with the entry of men into the profession? That's a really interesting point.
2: I hadn't actually thought about that. And it does make sense because I don't think there's any equivalent in anything I've seen of some kind of a, a hat or headpiece for a man. But it's it's hard to say exactly when caps stopped being worn. The shift definitely begins in the early seventies. And again, completely dependent on the hospital. Even then, a cap might not have been required, but old school nurses still chose to wear them. It was part of of a uniform code that they had always known. And I remember my mom talking about, like, working on the floor and this one old nurse who was still wearing her cap in the hospital in, like, the 80s, long after it was required, it made her just seem like this, this relic. So... That first generation of nurses graduating without the cap, they just saw them in many instances as antiquated. But it was harder for the ones who were in those in-between years that had that clear nurse identity, almost stripped away from them. And with that, maybe even memories of their youth as wide-eyed nursing students.
3: So it must have been very conflicting for them. Yeah. And it was it was like, it was an honor and it was a privilege to wear the cap once you got it, right? Status. It spoke to your status. You touched on this very briefly, and and we do talk a lot about technology on the show and how new innovations in technology evidence themselves in our clothing many, many times. And and I'm sure that nurse uniforms are no exception at all. You mentioned the Permapress fabrics, but are there any other novel technologies that made really major changes to medical workwear at this time?
2: Yeah, I think it's really the synthetic fabrics that to make the big difference with the new uniforms, um, you know, particularly with that John Hopkins 1969 example. With the 1980s uniform from the Bridgeport School of Nursing, when I looked at the label, it said it was Dakron polyester, and it was a 75% ratio to 25% cotton. Polyester reveals its durability and color fastness because the collections documentation describe it as excellent and appears new in the condition listings even though they were over 30 years old at that point. And then the pre-1940 pieces were described as yellowed and stained, and they still had residue of being starched on them. There's also less metal and other materials on the newer uniforms, buttons, there's no buttons, there's no zippers, less pins. So all of that's going to help the garment wear better. And once the one-size-fits-all scrubs come into play that have very little, if any, tailoring, they're even more so are going to wash and wear a lot better.
3: I'm glad you brought up scrubs. Um, what comprises the modern-day nurse uniform? And I'm hoping that you can also, when you talk about this, comment a little bit on the subject of differentiation within medical dress by profession within the hospital, let's say.
2: On most hospital floors today, a nurse now wears scrubs. So uh, simply cut loose V-neck shift with baggy straight leg trousers that are adjusted at the waist by drawstring. It's practical attire, it's meant to be disposable. And again, it's made of these cotton polyester blends that can easily be laundered by the hospital or the individual, which allow for multiple changes within a single shift if necessary. Because of the sturdier modern fabrics and without the need for harsh cleaning treatments like bleach or starch, these scrubs can have a much longer life. And in some instances, a nurse may wear street clothes, but with a long white lab coat covering them, Those nurses, they tend to have specialized fields. So for example, um, my mother was a maternity nurse for many years, but later on she became a board-certified lactation consultant. So she specializes in breastfeeding. And so when she would go to work on the floor, she would wear street clothes and then she would have a lab coat over them. And the only distinction that separates levels of education with the scrubs for nurses are small pins and patches that display honors and accreditations that are worn either on or near the collar or sometimes i've seen them worn on their um identification cards and mm-hmm. that's also the only time where you're really going to see if the person taking care of you is a nurse because rn is going to be in really big letters also on some units and i'm sure a lot right now there are completely disposable one-time use garments that are thrown away immediately that might be worn over scrubs that are probably some kind of paper type composite material but so there's kind of a dilemma here for nurses that perhaps they have a, a desire to wear a standard uniform that clearly identifies them as a nurse, but then it shows that you're not equal to a doctor. But then if you wear this new general attire, you can be mistaken for any medical professional. Yes, doctors, but then, you know, medical assistants and nurses' aides, there's no distinction in your training. And some hospitals, like the University of Michigan, I know, they have different hospital units wearing different colored scrubs. So like the ER nurses wear navy blue. This color delineation, it serves to make individual units more identifiable, but it doesn't do anything to separate educational distinctions.
3: Yeah, especially for the patient, too, because the patient doesn't have any idea.
2: Yeah, everyone, I think, kind of becomes nurse, and you might not be corrected. (laughs)
3: Um, Marissa, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, We are about out of time, but before we sign off, I'm wondering if you had any fun anecdotes or other fun facts that you wanted to share with our listeners that perhaps we have not yet covered.
2: Sure. Well, I mean, I think it's really important right now to just take a minute to acknowledge the nurses, all of the medical professionals. I know that we're all just so grateful for the work that they do every day, but especially during times of crisis like this. I'm just, I'm so in awe continually of the amazing women in my life who are nurses. My mom, my aunt, who's also my godmother. My mother-in-law was a nurse. And now um, one of my sister-in-laws, she uh, had a a traumatic head injury and was so moved by the care that she received by nurses that she went back to school and became a nurse. And so she's out there right now. Yeah. It really, I think it takes a special kind of person to go into this field. And, you know, it's just... It's really amazing that people dedicate their lives to doing this
3: type of thing. Yeah. And we are absolutely dedicating this episode to all of (laughs) them. I guess the only other thing is I have to ask you, did you ever dress up as a nurse for Halloween? I didn't. And you know what? Uh, Some of our regular listeners might remember this, but I was born into and raised in a cult. So I was never allowed to celebrate (laughs) Halloween. I've never gone (laughs) trick-or-treating. I never got to do any of that fun stuff, so yeah. And 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 as far as being an adult, um, not so big on the slutty whatever costume, right? <laughs> that's well, that's a lot to unpack
2: uh, there with adults. But um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I as a child never dress up as a nurse, but I did for Halloween one year. I think around the time I might have first started doing this this research, and I remember um. I was like very serious about it. I mean, it was, I had, my, my mom helped me make a proper cap. Like she spent a ton of time, like folding a piece of paper up and like Aww,
1: trying to make it nice. look
2: just right. But I mean, you know what happened? I got hit on by a jerk just like a doctor. So some things, <laughs> some things never change.
4: <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Marissa, thank you so much for sharing your wonderful research with us. As April noted, this topic is something that listeners have been asking for since we launched the podcast more than two years ago. cannot believe it's been that long. I know. (laughs) And the fact, April, that you were able to record it on National Nurses Week makes it all the more
3: special. It sure did. And again, we just want to say thank you to all of the healthcare professionals around the world who are doing the Herculean tasks that they are confronted with every day amidst this global pandemic. We wish you continued strength and health. And I personally vote that each and every one of you gets a nice, very long, rejuvenating vacation when this is all over. So we are sending you all of our love and respect. Yes, absolutely.
4: Well, that does it for us this week, dress listeners. May you consider wearing an extra dose of white to honor healthcare professionals this week when you get dressed. Please join us on Thursday for our mini-sode where we answer listener questions and or keep you up to date on the latest in the field of fashion studies. If you would like to submit a question for a future fashion history mystery episode, you can, of course, always direct message us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast, or please email
3: us at dressed at iheartmedia.com. Thank you, as always, to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeart Video that makes this show possible each week. We will catch you on Thursday. Dressed. The History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.
1: Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time.